This evening we'll be looking at the story of Palm Sunday as found in the Gospel of Luke. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles or your Bible apps, you can get those out now. Or you can follow along on the screens. I'll be reading from the New International Version, Luke chapter 19, 28 to 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks of you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon. Everybody keeps saying evening, but it's still light out there. So it's afternoon in my mind, okay? It's really unusual to be here at this time of day, and it's been an interesting day of being able to enjoy the weather. And I have to say, I'm thinking that a few times a year we need to do this. Just call it a 5 o'clock service and be able to sleep in and have a big breakfast. Oh, wait a minute, you all already get to do that. Well, anyway, for those of us who work here, uh, we don't get to do that. So this was a very fun day. Well, today is Palm Sunday also Palmberg Sunday, Uh, but we're going to be focusing on this story in Luke, although it is in all four Gospels. And the title of our sermon today is Jesus, King on a Mission. Now, I thought it would be kind of fun to see some other kings that you probably know. So we have some slides up here to show you. We've got King Henry. He was a real piece of work, wasn't he? And uh, then we've got, let's see, King Tut. I'm sure you all want to start singing the Steve Martin song, but we'll wait for later. So we've got King Tut. We've got, ah, who knows who this is? Arthur, Sword in the Stone. All right, one of the great Disney movies. The King. Had to have the King in here, right? Okay. He needs no explanation. King Kong. Now, I, I'll tell you, how living in a house of boys, King Kong was, you know, really big. Every Saturday, we watched King Kongi, as the boys called him. And, ah, Lion King. That's a great one. Is that it? I can't remember. I had a bunch of them, and Chris and I went through. Yes, all right. So we have those kings, but today we're going to focus on the real king, all right? 
And I have four points to my sermon, and I put these up because Peter is so good about putting up his three points. However, I wanted to up the game because I'm kind of competitive here. So we have four points today, Peter. Top that, okay? Okay, so if you are in Luke, that would be great, Luke 19, and we're starting in verse 29. But before we get into our Palm Sunday scene here, we do need to put this in context. Always, always, always look at what comes before and what comes after what you're studying. It's very important, especially because it says here, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead. Well, wouldn't you want to know what it was he had just said? So if you go back to verse 11 here, there is a parable that he's telling. And in this verse 11, it tells us why he's telling this parable now. It says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Because of that, he was telling this parable. Now, this is the parable of the ten minas, and a mina is a Greek form of currency, and it's worth about three months' wages. We're not going to go into this parable here. You can do that on your own. I just want to bring out the point of why he would tell it now. Luke's gospel says that there was a specific reason for this. It was a parable for telling Jesus leaving his people for a time which which he was going to do soon, and in his absence they must faithfully carry out the work that had been given them to do. This is an example of a use it or lose it thing. The nobleman in this parable is Jesus, and he returns with authority after he's left for a time to call his servants to account and to execute judgment of his enemies. Sounds like a familiar story, huh? So he's telling this now because of what's coming up. So we have King Jesus here riding on this donkey, and this is a real celebration parade. We have some palm branches up here that I actually got from a florist, and they're laying on here. And palm branches were being waved all over the place. And I don't know if you've ever been to a parade that's actually been focused on a celebrity or a hero. A lot of parades are just, you know, fun parades for a holiday. The Macy's Day Parade is the closest one I can come to because Santa comes in at the end and you can't miss that. But there was actually another time that I went to a parade when I was very small that I remember. We lived in uh, northern Indiana and it was a political thing. My parents were big Barry Goldwater fans. It tells you how old I am. And one evening they scooped all of us kids up in the car. There were four of us. And I, I don't remember much about this because I would have only been like a couple years old, seriously. Um, I was not 10 or something, okay? So uh, <laughs> I sort of get that cleared up. So we went to this parade, and I, all I remember about it was being able to sit on my dad's shoulders and watching this whole crowd of people and this train coming in, and it was pretty cool to have that eye view. But that was the only parade for a celebrity that I knew. Well, the crowds here have gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, which was going to begin in four days. The law required that every male within 20 miles of the city needed to attend. So this particular year, there were probably more people than usual coming to this, and um, 
we also hear from, G, from John's gospel that there was a question asked if Jesus was going to attend the festival. So there was a lot of uh, talk going on about would he be there. Now see, too, not too long before this, he had raised Lazarus from the dead, Mary and Martha's brother. And so word of that would have spread like crazy. So everybody wanted to come see Jesus. In verse 37, it says that the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had witnessed. They were ready to make him their king. Now, I don't know about you, but I definitely see myself in this crowd. They had seen Jesus do amazing things, and they were ready to see Jesus do a lot more amazing things. But as we know, as the week went on, when Jesus was not doing those amazing things anymore, they quickly turned on him. And you know, I do the same, and maybe you even do the same. I am really quick to give Jesus praise when things are going well in my life, when I'm feeling good, when things are going my way, when Jesus is doing what I think he should be doing. But when things aren't going so well, I find it harder to give him that same praise. Now, it's easy to praise him for what he does, but not so much for just who he is. I want you to remember that in this point in the Jewish history, the people had been oppressed and conquered by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. They had had it. They were done. They wanted to be free. And they thought that King Jesus was finally going to give them the political victory that they wanted and thought they deserved. The palm branches that they waved symbolized a victorious ruler. So we also read, and we heard the choir singing, Hosanna, which means to save or help. And they also quoted from Psalm 118 that said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, just, just like we sang. And interestingly, the other phrase we read here is peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Sounds a lot like what the angels told those shepherds earlier in Luke when they came to tell the shepherds about Jesus being born. Well, Jesus now is ready or his time has come to ride into Jerusalem as king. Before this, he restrained from any public demonstrations of honor of him. As a matter of fact, before in the book of John, with the feeding of the 5,000, it says that Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, he withdrew to the mountain by himself. His time had not yet come. Well, let's look at what kind of king Jesus is. What kind of a king is he? Well, we have a couple of pictures here of Jesus. We have the one of him riding on the donkey, very peaceful, and yet there was lots of excitement around him. But then we have another picture of Jesus. This Jesus doesn't look quite the same, and this is really an image from the book of Revelation. So we have two kinds of kings here. We also have two kinds of crowns. We have a crown that has jewels on it. Now, obviously, this isn't real, but it's a good representation. This looks like a very kingly royal crown. But then we have this other crown here that I had a florist make up last week for me, and they had a heck of a time trying to make something out of thorns. So 
you have, to, and I would invite you after church if you would like to come up and even touch this crown so that you can get an idea of what that must have been like to wear that particular crown. So we have two crowns, two different pictures. Well, which crown would you want your king to wear? Think about that. It's safe to say that Jesus was not the king that these people had in mind. And their first clue should have been his entrance on the donkey, because this was a fulfillment of a prophecy they would have known about back in the book of Zechariah. And this prophecy says, See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. Now, had they reflected a little more deeply on that prophecy, they might not have become so disillusioned later in the week. This donkey was used for peaceful events, which would mean Jesus is a king of peace. No Jewish king since Solomon had ridden a donkey in an official capacity before. The Gospel of John tells us that his disciples, his very disciples who spent so much time with him, did not make the connection between these prophecies and what he was doing until after he was resurrected. The Old Testament prophecies about him were all coming true, and they should have known that. Jesus never intended to be the warrior king who was going to become a political rival of Caesar. He wanted to free the people, but the freedom that he offered and offers us today goes way beyond political systems. On that first Palm Sunday, Jesus demonstrated that the quality of his rule stands in sharp contrast to the quality of the rule of Caesar or any other earthly ruler. In verse 42, we, we read, If you, even you, had only known on this day what will bring you peace. Jesus was their only way to real peace. Not the kind that you get from your chosen political party being in power. Not the kind from having a large bank account. Not the kind from getting into the right college, having the right job, or even having satisfying, healthy relationships. Because you see, the kind of peace Jesus offers does not depend on our circumstances. And Tammy and Jeff can testify to that. Our circumstances change every day, but we need to get our peace from Jesus, who is never changing. We all want peace in the end, right? Isn't that something we could all agree on? But the difference is, for Jesus, peace was the means to the end. Peace is not just a goal to be attained somewhere down the road. It's the way he walked down the road of life here on earth. So he's a king of peace, but what else does this scripture tell us? Jesus is also a king who weeps for us. He weeps for us. The Greek word here is klaio. This word does not mean to tear up or cry softly. It means to cry out, to wail, to audibly cry. This is what Jesus was doing when he looked over Jerusalem and he started to weep. He wept bitterly, would be a better way to say it. Now, I am not particularly a big crier myself, okay? It's something that I only do in a controlled situation, um, or I'm by myself. You know, crying in itself is just sort of this uncontrollable thing, and, you know, I'm not really good with that kind of stuff. So I typically don't do that, 
However, I am married to a crier. And we didn't start out that way. And I got to thinking about it that has it just been because he's married to me that he's become a crier? I don't know. But this man will cry at the drop of a hat. Any sad movie or romantic show or whatever, he's just, the tears are coming down. And it's, it's funny. I'm sorry, honey. But it's just, <laughs> you've got to pull it together, okay? So, yeah, you're crying now. <laughs> anyway, okay. <laughs> However, Jesus audibly cried. And, you know, I wonder what most people thought of that when they saw him doing that. He was not crying for himself, and he tells us why he cried. It's because he saw what was ahead for that city. He knew the things that were going to happen. Now, for us, we would have been crying for ourselves because, remember, he knew what was going to happen to himself down the road this week. But no, it was for this city. And he came upon it, and it all hit him, and he just kind of lost it. And I wonder if they thought, was he weeping for joy because he was going to become this new king? And would they want a king that was so emotional? I don't know. But Jesus was mourning that Jerusalem, with all its privileges, prophets, means of grace, which was the sacrificial system, the Old Testament, the scholars, the teachers, All these things were a foreshadow of him, and they were blind to the most important event in history that ever happened for them. We know what he meant in verse 42 by this day. It is the day when Jesus Christ entered into their midst, King of kings, Lord of lords. It was the day that God had spoken of in so many places, preparing them. They had hundreds and hundreds of years of preparation for this very day. All their prophets, without exception, referred to it, but they were blind to the identity of Christ. They didn't know him. They didn't recognize him. The words in John's prologue were coming true. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He was that promised Savior and Messiah, but they had an image of Jesus that didn't match who he really was. See, he saw that in 40 years, in 70 AD, the Jewish state was brought under terrible judgment from God because of their rejection of Jesus. Roman soldiers, thousands upon thousands of them, encircled Jerusalem for the great siege, and they waited for the Jews to just starve to death. Jesus saw all this coming. Have you ever watched a friend or a child or another family member headed right for destruction? You could see that their choices, that their lifestyles were turning them away from God and leading them straight to heartache. That's what Jesus saw that day, and that's what he sees today. I believe that when we sin, when we turn away from God's way, Jesus weeps bitterly. Not because he's angry with us, but because he sees our destruction coming. 
I've had times in my life when I have walked away from God. I have decided that my way was a much better way. It certainly seemed like it would be a much better way. And there were times in high school that I strayed away from my faith and made some choices that frankly still haunt me today. I get images in my head of things that I did that make me want to cringe. And Jesus saw that in me and knew better. But I needed to go my own way, or so I thought. So Jesus is a peaceful king who weeps over our destruction. But what about that other picture of Jesus, the warrior on the horse that we see? Well, this is an image, like I said, from the book of Revelation. And I'm going to read just a little bit of this. We see King Jesus returns to earth with an army from heaven. And this seems like a whole different king. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, not a donkey. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war, not peace. And at the end, he says, And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Remember that parable that Jesus told on his way to Jerusalem? This is the return he was talking about when he comes back a second time. So which is he? The king on the donkey? The king on the horse? Well, it's not either or. He's both and. When he returns to earth in power and glory, he will judge every person. So which Jesus do you want? I know that I deserve that warrior one that's going to come judge, but I want the merciful one who's going to be peaceful and weeps for me. But you know, don't we really want that warrior one for other people? Like, come back quickly, Lord, because they are so bad. We need you to judge them. Yeah, we're quick to think that way. So we know what kind of a king he is. What's his kingdom like? How many of you have ever heard of the bizarro world? Comic strip people here a little bit? Okay, a few of you do. Again, my boys, I was in comic strip world for years. Uh, Bizarro world means counterintuitive or opposite. So let's say that Superman goes into the other world. It's the bizarro world because when he does something good, it's actually something bad. It's totally counterintuitive. And this is really what Jesus' kingdom is like. It's counterintuitive to the world that we live in. Here's a few statements that Jesus himself makes about his kingdom. In Mark, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. In Luke, he says, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And last, from John, he's telling Pontius Pilate, who's just asked him, are you king of the Jews? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is from another place. So, is God's kingdom now, or is it later on? Yes. The kingdom of God is the rule of God breaking into history through Jesus Christ, working in the world and expressed in the hearts and lives of God's people. 
This is a great definition of the kingdom of God. And if you were on Jeopardy and this, this answer came up, your question would be, what is the kingdom of God? And you would know the answer. So the kingdom of God was ushered in, Jesus ushered in God's kingdom. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of heaven too, so they're the same thing. It exists where God's people live out God's principles. It has no physical boundaries, and it will last forever. It's not taken by force. By accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we become part of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not of this world. However, it works in this world. And last, believers or Christians are called to pray for their enemies, care for the sick, reach out to those in need, be a friend to the oppressed and the outcast, and share the good news of Jesus with everyone. That is the kingdom of God, and it sounds pretty different than the one we live in. So are you a part of God's kingdom? And if you are, how do people know that about you? In what ways do you live counterintuitive to this world? How do you live opposite? At school, where you work, in your family. And I don't mean some kind of superior attitude like I'm better than you because I don't do that because that's not something that attracts people. I'm talking about what we have heard before from Pastor Peter, being safe and holy. Sometimes we just want to be holy, but we need to be safe too. So that's what his kingdom looks like, and different ways to live that out. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but if you've ever been someplace and someone's given you more change than you were supposed to get, or they didn't charge you for something in your cart... Those things have happened to me before, and when you try to correct somebody, when it's been in your favor, they look at you like you are from another world. Why wouldn't you just take the money and run? But you know, we have opportunities every day to live out God's kingdom's principles in this world. And how do you do that? And how do you pass that on to your kids? So what was his mission? We have Jesus king on a mission, but what was his mission? Well, I wanted to read to you our church's mission statement that is, um, you've seen, I think Peter's put it in the loop several times, and this is something that um, is in flux, so don't think it's set in stone at this point, but here's what the mission statement says right now. We hope to be a church where people can come as they are, where they learn about Jesus and his great love for us, where they can experience grace and forgiveness in a tangible way, where they can serve others and be a light to the world. Now, this isn't just a mission statement that's been thought up, because you see, God has a mission, and we're called to carry out his mission. So this mission statement would reflect what is God's mission, not just what do we think. So what about Jesus' mission? What did he say about it? Well, I'm going to give you a couple verses here. In Mark, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The second part is, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, which is really what the world thinks, right? But to save the world through him. That was his mission. Sounds like a rescue mission to me. 
The mission of King Jesus actually began way back in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve made that fatal choice to disobey God and go their own way. And you remember the story. God put them in this perfect garden and he had a perfect relationship with them and everything was perfect, but there was just this one little rule. And you know, looking back, we think, you idiots, you could do anything you want, but can't you really relate to that? The one thing you're not supposed to do, the one thing you're not supposed to eat, the one place you're not supposed to go, that's what you think about. You become obsessed with that. Some of you have given something up for Lent, and you probably have been thinking, I can't wait till after Easter when I can partake of, the, excuse me, of that again. Well, I have a funny story about when our kids were little, we had this VCR. No, there were no DVD players at the time. They're just these big VCR boxes. And one time we found peanut butter cup in the VCR. So we decided we needed to be very explicit with the kids that they were not to touch the VCR. Don't touch the VCR. Well, of course, Ben was probably about two, couldn't talk much, but could run around and make a lot of trouble. He would go over to that VCR when you were in the room, and he would just be going like this. You go, Ben, don't touch that VCR. And then he'd just stand there and touch it with his finger. And, of course, he and the spanking spoon would have another session together, and we'd move on. But it was that one thing in the room that he was going to touch because we kept saying, don't touch it. Well, Adam and Eve did the same thing. They ate from that tree of knowledge of good and evil, and their disobedience separated them and us, by the way, from a holy God. So where's Jesus in this story? Well, in Genesis 3.15, which my confirmation class knows as the first promise, um, this ter the term for this verse is also called first gospel. It's a prophetic picture of a time when Satan would be defeated by the woman's triumphant seed, which would be Jesus. Here's what the verse says, and this is God speaking to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, meaning Jesus, shall bruise your head, and you, meaning Satan, shall bruise his heel. See, because the serpent had destroyed or ruined the human race, the serpent would be destroyed by a member of the human race, Jesus. So this was the first time when we actually see the promise of the Messiah coming, way back in Genesis so Jesus' mission was to save all of humanity by dying on the cross, which would reverse the effect of Adam's act of sin. His death and resurrection made it possible for us to be rescued from eternal separation from God and to be able to experience eternal life with him. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you would like to explore what all that means, becoming a part of God's kingdom, we would love to hear from you. Pastor Peter or I or other people on leadership would like to talk to you more about that. So we know what kind of king he was. We know what his mission was. What motivated him for this mission? Well, it's pretty clear. John 3.16. We all know this verse, but it never gets old. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. His motivation for that mission, it was his love for us, pure and simple. 
to endure what he chose, that crown of thorns that's hard to even pick up, the humiliation, the physical pain, the betrayal, and everything else that was going to come that week, he needed a powerful motivation. Do you love anybody like that? I think that all of us that have children can probably say that we would do anything for that child. We would definitely die for that child. But I want you to think about this. That's not all that Jesus did on the cross. Him who was perfect, never had sinned, would you be willing to take on the sin, like Jesus did, of every person ever born, ever who would be born? Can you imagine the weight of that darkness? Every murderer, every rapist, every robber, every, every hideous thing you can think of, that sin is what was put on Jesus. I don't think any of us would volunteer for that mission. Just think about the, your own guilt when you do something wrong. I know how you get that pit in your stomach and you can't face somebody. That times a zillion is what Jesus took on. So to complete such a mission, Jesus had to love us more than we can even comprehend, more than we can possibly love another person. So how has God called you to carry out his mission? We all have a part in his mission. And it might not be to literally die for somebody, but it might be to die to what is keeping you from doing what God's called you to do. Your own plans, your own desires, your own comfort. If you have children, your mission definitely is to die to or give up whatever would keep you from spiritually nurturing them so that they grow up knowing that God created them and they have a mission too. Sometimes we think that our mission as parents, and even some parenting books will tell you this, is to raise happy, healthy children. It's not. The mission is to teach and model that they were created by God for him, not to be healthy and happy, but to be holy. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus wants you to take on a role in this church. But you don't have time. You don't have energy. You don't have the skills. Really? Who does? Participating in God's mission is never easy. It's never going to fit into your life. It's not going to be something that you choose to do necessarily. But that doesn't let you off the hook. I want you to listen to this. If my motivation for the mission that Jesus has called me to is anything less than or other than my love for God and others, I will not be able to carry out the mission. It's too hard. We will bail or we won't even try. Jesus was able in his humanness to get on that donkey and ride into Jerusalem, completely resolved to his mission because he was motivated by love. We're told in Corinthians that 
faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. It's the most pure, most powerful motivation for fulfilling God's mission for us, and it's the only way we can do it. I want to challenge you to be brave enough to ask God to show you what the mission is that you have been saying no to. A very wise woman who is here with us, my friend Carol Lotus, said to me one time to pray that God would make you willing to be willing. Does that sound familiar? That's a tough one. So King Jesus had a mission to save us from our eternal separation from God. And because of that mission, he took off his royal crown and he accepted the thorny crown. He chose to carry out his mission because of his obedience to his father and his incomprehensible love for us. What will your response be to such an act of undeserving, sacrificial love? Let's pray. Lord, open our minds and our hearts to what our response should be because of what you have done for us. God, help us to be willing to ask the question, what is our mission? How are we to carry it out? Thank you, Jesus, for your words and for completing that mission. In your name we pray, amen.